I have a book on my shelves that's entitled Farewell Sermons. And various authors, but the book consists of sermons that were preached either toward the end of their public ministry or toward the end of their lives. And I've only read a few of those, but I have been tremendously blessed by them. What we've been studying in John chapter 17 is the end of Jesus's farewell sermon. It began back in chapter 14 and goes all the way through the ending of these words that we'll study together this morning. But this is the last of Jesus's public ministry. The last time he will be seen with his disciples in this way, teaching the people around him even as he teaches them. So in a very real sense, this is the end. And isn't it fitting that he closes out his ministry in prayer? And not just with any prayer. With this prayer that, Lord willing, we have all been blessed together in studying it. We'll finish it this morning. I want to read to you verses 20 down through verse 26. Jesus says there, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are, I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Before I read verse 24, I want you to think about the last part of that verse. The Father has loved You and I and all believers just as he has loved the Son. It's an amazing thought. Father, I desire that they also whom you have, that you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it. And the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed to be able to read these words of our Savior. We're especially blessed to know that they are immediately applicable to us. We're thankful that Christ, on the eve of his crucifixion, prayed for us, his people. Would you open this word to our understanding? Would you feed us from it? May you use it for our further sanctification and to strengthen our faith. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look at three things out of these closing verses. The first is the imperative Or necessity of faith. The necessity of belief. 
Secondly, I want to see in these verses the unity of Christ's true church. And this was his desire that his church would be united. And then thirdly, toward the end of this paragraph, the desire for glory that Christ has both for himself and for us. So, Lord willing, we'll make it through those three things. First, I want to remind you or show us all out of verse 20 the necessity of belief. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me. The disciples that Jesus had prayed for to this point, the eleven, had put their faith and their trust in the Lord and had and are bearing fruit unto his glory. Now granted, in very short order, they would all desert him and run for their lives, even Peter. But the Lord restores them. He uses them mightily to establish his church, to write the scriptures, to bear witness to his name, to call his people to faith and trust and repentance to himself. But we can't miss in this first verse the absolute necessity of belief. If you will be saved, you will believe in Christ. And you'll believe everything that the scripture says concerning him. You cannot be saved and believe certain things about him. You cannot be saved and believe certain things he said were true. You can only be saved if you believe everything the scriptures say about him. And everything that he said to be true. Belief in what we call the veracity or trustworthiness of scripture concerning sin in general, and then sin as immediately applied to ourselves, we must believe what the Scripture says about sin and the wage of sin, the damnation that is due us because of sin, that being death not only physically, but also what the Scripture calls the second death, That is eternal punishment and torment away from the presence and the love of God in Christ. But we also not only believe what the scripture says about sin. We believe what the scripture says about the wisdom and love of God in sending Christ as our substitute. Standing in our place, absorbing the wrath of God upon himself. And we also believe that he was willing to do this. And he did this because of his great love, both for his father and for us, his people, those that had been given to him by his father. We believe that he was condemned to death. Though he never sinned, he was condemned as a sinner to die a sinner's death upon the cross Where he atoned for our sin. We believe that he was raised from the dead by the power of God. And that he then later ascended into glory. Where he resumed that glory that he had with the father before 
he humbled himself and came on this mission of redemption. We believe these things unto the saving of our soul. We believe these things knowing that he will not lose those that come to him through faith. We saw last week that the Father in heaven will keep us. That there is no authority in heaven or on earth or combined that is able to snatch believers out of the hand of Christ or his Father. We believe these things. To not believe these things and to reject these things as being untrue or inconsequential is to accept and receive damnation unto yourself and bear the consequence alone. If you were to describe hell, if someone were to ask you, what is hell, biblically speaking, a lot of things you could say. You could say it's a place of fire. It is a place where the worm never dies. It is a place of eternal separation. It is a place of damnation. You could even go so far as to give them a a small glimpse into what hell is by showing them the parable that Jesus taught of the rich man and Lazarus. There's a lot that we know about hell, but I want to put this thought before you this morning. One of the ways that we can contemplate what hell is And this is scripturally speaking, one of the most sobering views that we can have into this place called Gehenna, the lake of fire, is to realize that there is no more mediation. There is no longer one standing between you and a holy God absorbing the wrath that was due you. And I can say that even in the sense of what we call common grace. Even in common, in the aspect of common grace, Christ is mediating even there. He is especially and particularly the only mediator between God and men in respect to salvation. But it's only for the good of his church and believers that he is mediating even now. The wrath of a holy God poured out amongst those who, on those who will not believe. But one day... He will completely withdraw even that mediatorship. And mankind will be left to stand before a holy God with no advocate, with no one interceding. You've probably heard the brashness, the arrogance of certain people as I have through the years who say that they are prepared and ready to face God on their own. What a fearful and frightful proposition that is. So we are all the more thankful for this one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who stood in our place and appeased the wrath of God, worked our redemption, atoned for our sins. And it is this of which Jesus speaks in the 20th verse. I pray not for these alone. In other words, not just these 11 disciples of mine, but now he is praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Note the confidence of Jesus. 
He knows there will be those who would believe on him. That is so not because he looked through the corridor of time and saw those who would put their faith and trust in him. But because he knew there had been a people known by the Father from eternity past who had been given him. And they will hear the message of the gospel, believe it, and be saved. Isn't this also the confidence that we have in our mission endeavor? Isn't this why we continue confidently in gospel ministry here and abroad? There will be those who yet believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they must hear the message of the gospel. They must see the beautiful feet that Paul writes of. This is the surety of the mission of the church. This is why some missionaries speak in this language, and I love it. They say they are going to a foreign country, or they are going to the grocery store, whatever it may be, to find their brethren. To find those who have yet to come into the family. To share the message of Christ with them, knowing that some will come to faith. It's the same confidence that Christ has here. I pray for those who will believe in me. He doesn't say who may believe in me. He doesn't say, oh, I hope they will believe in me. He says they will believe in me. These people are represented as being in your homes, in your workplaces. They're amongst your family. They're amongst your acquaintances. They're amongst complete strangers. They live in the uttermost parts of the world, but yet they live close to home. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, there will be those that put their faith and trust in him. That's why it was so encouraging to hear last Wednesday of the work, not just in Lebanon, but anytime you hear of a work going on somewhere that is so dark. You you hear that the gospel is being preached and even in the midst of that darkness and danger. There are people who come to Christ. Even though you hear of this one one girl that he spoke of saying she knows. If she ever submits herself to baptism, very likely her father will take the necessary steps to take her life. That's reality for so many Christians in so many places. And it's only because of the grace of God that is often spurned. And often taken for granted that it's not our own experience. Notice what Jesus says about these apostles of his in verse 20. While he is praying for those who in some time future would believe in him. He says that they are going to believe in him through their word. Through the word of the apostles. So we have this double aspect of the ministry of the word from the lips of Jesus here in these verses. Earlier, we saw last week in verse 17 that Jesus was praying and he was asking the father to sanctify his disciples according to the truth, your word being the truth. So there Jesus attests to the fact that the word of God is that primary tool that the father uses to sanctify those who have believed in him. 
But here in verse 20, just a few verses later, it is the word of God, which is the primary tool that the, the Lord uses to bring unbelievers to faith. You're familiar with verses like Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the very power of God unto salvation. Here it is the word of God written by these eleven. That is written by them and attested to by them that saves and justifies believers. But in both places, whether it's initial conversion or sanctification, the word of God is the primary tool. Jesus does not pray that people, believers, would be sanctified apart from the word, nor does he pray that those who would believe in him sometime future would be saved apart from the word. We see that the word of God is central to both. He being the very word of God himself. That's why we must continue to be people of the word. If we get away from the word of God, then we've just stepped away From the only thing that the scriptures have given, that God has given his blessing upon in the sanctification and the salvation of sinners. There's nothing under heaven that will accomplish this purpose among us. The necessity or the imperative of belief. Let me ask you a question and you answer it in your own heart. What do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about his word? And a follow-up question, how firm are you in those convictions? Could the least shaking of your faith cause you to set both of them aside? Could a derogatory word by someone you hold in high esteem cause you to set those things aside? Could a little mockery, a little scorn cause you to set those things aside? What do you believe? I like this summary of what we believe. We believe that salvation is a gift by God's grace alone. That this gift of salvation is attainable through faith alone. There's no other instrument. Belief only. And this belief is particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. But we also believe that all of this is resting upon the foundation of God's word alone. And that it all tends into the praise and the glory of Of our God alone. That's what we believe. We believe salvation is by grace. Through faith. In Christ. Based upon the foundation of God's word. All to the glory of the Father. This is the necessity or the imperative of faith. Jesus says I do not pray for these alone. But for those who will believe in me. Through their word. The second part of this is to see and note the unity of Christ's church. And notice, this is the great desire of the heart of Christ for his people, his believers, to be unified. 
for his people to be one. Even the equation that he makes is even as the father and the son are one. And anytime we think about the unity of the the church or to flip that over the disunity of the church, how can we not think about what Paul has written in Ephesians chapter four? If you want to turn there, it's fine. If not, just listen. I want to read a few verses here. And as we read these verses, let me remind you that the unity of the church is not created by the church. The unity of the church is not created by the church, but yet it is maintained by the church. We are not left to create something that is going to unite us in the faith. We need not go after any type of worldly pursuit to hold us together. Give it enough time, that worldly thing, whatever it is, is going to crumble. But yet as the church, individual believers in the church are called to maintain the unity. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Before we go on. Notice that unity in the church amongst believers is certainly to be maintained, but it can only be maintained by humble, Christ-like, servant-hearted, lowly and gentle, long-suffering believers. The unity of the church will not be maintained by haughty, self-seeking believers. You go on from that and and Paul says, speaking of this unity, there is, notice how often there are seven or eight things here that he says there is one of these, there is one of these, there is one of these. He says there is one body. And that one body consists of all believers of all time. Old Testament saints were saved in the same way that New Testament saints are, only they were looking forward. We look backward. They believed the promises of God when God said that in time he would send one like Moses. That in time he would send a deliverer. They put their hope and faith and trust in that Messiah, just like we do now on the other side, looking back to that. There is one body comprised of all believers of all time. But there is also only one spirit. There is not a multitude of spirit of God. There is one. And that one spirit, it's amazing when you look at what the spirit, what the scriptures declare the work of the spirit is. We might say it this way to apply what Christ has won. But you can also think of it like this in a more biblical sense. That he takes the things of Christ and makes them known. He takes the work of Christ and he makes it known. There is one spirit. That's why John the apostle would say, brethren, test the spirits. Not every spirit is of God. Discern. How do you discern what you hear taught? Well, you go back to 
Places like Acts 16 and 17 where the Bereans heard and what did they do? They went back to the scriptures to see if what they were hearing was in accord with the scriptures. There's one body, one spirit. Next, Paul says there is one hope. There is one hope. One hope of your calling. One Lord. Christ is not divided. Christ is the one Lord of his church. And we're told that in all things he must receive the preeminence. There is one faith. Jude says it this way in the third verse. That we are to contend earnestly for the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. There are not different types of faith. There is one faith. There is not different objects of our faith. There is one object, the one Lord that is spoken of here. But then also, Paul says there is one baptism. Probably a reference to that one immersion into Christ by faith. But I don't have a problem at all saying that there is also one baptism, true water baptism that is recognized in the scriptures that is applied to believers. I think the scriptures bear that out. But yet also there is one God and Father. Why Paul would write in another place, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Notice back in John 17 what Jesus prays in verse 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Notice what Jesus attaches to this desire of his that the church would be unified. That the world may believe that you sent me. How much harm has a disunified church comprised of selfish people done to the cause of Christ? Untold, innumerable. That's why we're called over and over To die to self. To set aside the high exalted thinking of ourselves. And with lowliness of mind. Consider each other member of the church greater. Their needs greater than my own. So that the world may believe that you sent me. A church that is ordered. And relating to one another. The way the scriptures set forth the example. It's almost unbearable for a believer to come into contact with that people. For an unbeliever to come into contact with that people. And not come to faith in Christ. That's the power of the unified church. Who are rallying as one body. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. An unbeliever, even as the scriptures tell us, when they come into that midst, 
How compelling is it to come all the way into Christ when you see a people that different from the world around them, that loving, that humble, that willing willingness to serve one another so that the world may know. God, help us to be more and more of that kind of people. Then the third part of this, the desire for glory. Verse 22. The glory which you have, which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. I like the King James word here for desire. It's, it reads this way, Father, I will. I will. This is the, the desire of Christ for his own people to be with him in glory. And isn't that how this farewell sermon of his began? If you go back to John 14, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And then Thomas, speaking for all of us, right? Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And in that verse that most likely everyone in the room has committed to memory, or at least part of it, Jesus says, I am the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So at the beginning and at the end of this farewell sermon of Jesus, he is reminding us that the ultimate end and aim of his is to come and take us to be with him. That is the hope of our calling. That is the hope that will get you out of bed no matter what has befallen you the day before. That is the hope that will keep you coming to the feet of Christ, knowing that in his goodness and in his mercy, because of his great love for you, his desire, his will is that you ultimately and finally be with him. Where he is even now preparing that place for us. Notice the language again. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. Unimaginable. That we will one day be taken by Christ to forever be with Christ to behold his glory. We've, we've talked about this from the beginning of this prayer. There was this implication of this glory that Christ had with his father before he humbled himself. Now he's speaking of the resumption of that glory and we get to see it. 
We get to see it and know that He, this glorified one of God, is our Lord, our Savior, the one who gave Himself for us, the one who bled for me, the one who died for me, the one for for which He was placed in the grave. It was for me and all of you. Now, brethren, we are gathered together and we are beholding that glory. There's an old song. Brother Mike used to sing it. I wish I could hear him sing it right now. Oh, glorious day that will be. This is what's held out before us. This is why nothing that happens in this world shakes us to the point of falling away. Notice what Jesus says here. We keep reading in verse 24. He says, For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The love of the Father and the Son, the contemplation of it really is impenetrable by our human finite minds. But every so often the scripture will peel back the curtain just a bit and let us look in. And this is one of those places Before the foundation of the world, the Father loved the Son. Can I show you something else? In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 4, there's a parallel of this phrase, before the foundation of the world. And while it is true, absolutely true, the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Notice what Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Put those two things together and what do you have? The Father loved the Son before. The Father chose a people to give to the Son Before the father glorified the son in giving him a people to redeem in time on the cross of Calvary, they will come to believe in him. That is why Jesus says, I don't pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. We understand verses like John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Is it not written in the prophets? They shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The Father loved the Son. The Father loved the people. The Father gave that people to the Son. The Son loved that people and came and accomplished their redemption. You see how glorious and wonderful the plan of God, the wisdom of God. Why why else in contemplating these things would Paul say things like that? Oh, the wisdom of God. Unsearchable. Past finding out. But yet... Here we hold the scriptures that declare these things to us. But before we bring this to a close, I want to see one more thing. It's in verse 25 and 6 where Jesus says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. 
And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Here's what some have called the foretaste of glory. Do we have eternal glory set before us that one day we will fully realize and be immersed in beholding the glory of Christ that the Father has given him? Yes. Is that the hope that is stretched out before us that we yearn for, we look forward to? Yes. But there's also in these verses a little foretaste of that glory. A little bit of heaven here on earth. And it's found there in the, in the last phrase of Jesus. That the love with which you loved me may be in them. And I in them. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing. There's nothing like it on earth. Where do you find this foretaste of glory? Amongst those that have been called out by Christ. I have declared to them your name. And will continue to declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them. Where will you find on this earth a place or a group of people where the love that the Father had toward the Son will be found? You will not find it anywhere save the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is one thing I'm certain of for myself. And if you would allow me, I will make it applicable to everyone in the room. We think Far too little of the church of Christ. Why? Because of past bad experiences. Because of past hurts. And we begin to think of the church as something less than it is. We begin to think of it more along the lines of a club or some social gathering that has hurt us. And now we distance ourselves from it. Does the church have flaws? Yes. Why does it have flaws? Because I'm here. And because you are here. But is the church altogether glorious? For what other entity, what other group of people can it be said that Christ died for? For what other group of people can it be said that Christ shed his blood for? For what other group of people can it be said that Christ is returning for? Only his bride. Only his bride. If we are to be sanctified by the truth, the word of God being truth, then our church life must continually be sanctified and reformed so that we look more and more like the scriptural, biblical expectation of a church. More next year than we do currently. More the year after that. More the year after that. Lord willing, if he tarries, may we grow more and more to look like what he expects of a church. A group of people that have come together, that have been called out of the world, called to Christ, who are professing faith in Christ, 
who were daily taking up their crosses and all the heartaches and difficulties of this life, walking through them together, weeping when one person weeps, rejoicing when another person rejoices, praying for one another, bearing with one another. Is your brother or sister going to offend you? Yes, countless times over. Bear with them. Will I offend you? Yes, countless times over. Please bear with me. Will you offend me? Yes. Lord willing, I will bear with you. Bearing with one another. For Christ's sake. That the world may know. That we are believers in him. Striving to be obedient to his commands. I'm going to close and I'm going to give credit here to where credit is due. This is, these are John MacArthur's words. In his commentary on John 17, he closes it in this way. He says, Christ's request in this greatest prayer ever prayed may be summed up in seven words. Here are the seven words. The Lord prayed for believers... Preservation. He prayed for their jubilation. He prayed for their liberation. For their sanctification. For their unification. For their association. And then lastly for their glorification. Now doesn't that sound like John MacArthur? But for each one of those. You can go back to chapter and verse. Preservation. Lord, keep them. Keep them. Preserve them. For their jubilation. That their joy may be full. That the joy that I had, the glory that I had, may be theirs. For their liberation. For their being set free. For their sanctification, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. For their unification, just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, the the church of Jesus Christ is to be unified. For their association, that the love with which you love me may, may be one in them. As they associate with one another, may this be the permeating factor. And then ultimately, for their glorification. What a prayer. This is what Christ prayed. This is the conclusion of Christ's final, perhaps his greatest sermon. This is the conclusion to his earthly ministry. This is the Lord's Prayer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you, Lord, that you have desired that we be kept, that we be sanctified, unified, ultimately and finally glorified. Lord, how we yearn for that day to be in your presence, Lord, to see our faith having then become sight, to be able to behold the glory that you have. 
as being the Son of God, received back into heaven after having accomplished the redemption of your people. Oh, what glory is there. Lord, we yearn for that day. We thank you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for praying for us. That our faith would not fail. We thank you for being our great high priest, even now interceding for us at the Father's right hand. How full of grace and mercy and truth are you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for making the Father known, for declaring him to us. We thank you for loving us, for humbling yourself, wrapping yourself in flesh, coming to this earth in the most humble means, enduring such hostility from sinners, enduring the stripes, the mocking and the scourging that was intended for us because of our sin. We thank you and oh how we love you for what you've done. We pray that you would come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray and ask it in your name. Amen.